All right, take a moment to find that in your Bible if you haven't already. Isaiah chapter 9, beginning in verse 1. Navigate on your device. Follow along and encourage the Lord to speak to your heart as the text uh, is read. The topic we're going to find there this morning, Isaiah expresses God's loving discipline of the Jews in the repeated phrase, for all this his anger is not turned away, but his hand is stretched out still. The title of the message, Talk to the Outstretched Hand. Let's pray. Father, we ought to be trembling knowing that this is from you, directly from you, Lord, uh, through Isaiah, that the Holy Spirit who lives within us is going to take this word and interpret it for us and encourage us by it and inspire us with it, make us a little bit more like Jesus than before we came in here. And if there's someone here, many someones, Lord, who don't know you, that same word can be used to convict and convince of judgment and the righteousness to come, Lord, or judgment to come and the righteousness that we need to avoid that. And so, Lord, do a work that is spiritual, that is beyond anything we could do on a natural basis. Do it in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Sam realized Frodo was setting off alone to Mordor. As Frodo rode towards the opposite shore, Sam waded out into the river Anduin. It deepened, and he was quickly in trouble because he couldn't swim. Unconscious and sinking, Frodo reached into the water and pulled him up into the boat. Fast forward to Mordor, inside Mount Doom, Frodo went over the cliff. He was holding onto a ledge by his fingertips. Sam reached down with his hand, clasped his other hand, and pulled him up. I'm sure you could uh, recall dozens of scenes in which someone is similarly saved by an outstretched hand. Four times we read in our text, but God's hand is stretched out still. God's outstretched hand represents his reaching out to discipline the nations of Israel and Judah, but the hand that meets out that discipline would also deliver them if they would just turn to him. Seventh century Israel and Judah refused the outstretched hand, The Lord would therefore mete out national discipline, first against Israel, then against Judah. I'll organize my comments around two questions. Number one, are you firmly in the grip of God's outstretched hand? Or number two, are you releasing your grip in God's outstretched hand? Let's take a look at being in his grip in the opening verses of chapter nine. Now, before we go on, let me say something. Let me mention something. The hand and the grip of God in these verses is a metaphor by which we can better comprehend God's national discipline. We're seeing them as maybe a father disciplining a son or a daughter, Uh, you know, reaching out in discipline to them, uh, administering discipline, but then wanting to hold their hand and take them back into a full relationship with them. And so these verses, they really have nothing to do with the perseverance of individual saints or saints being snatched out of God's hand, or the security of the believer. Those are doctrines for the New Testament. This is a metaphor that we can enter into and wonder where we're at in our walk with the Lord. And so before we see God's discipline, which is the bulk of the verses, we're given a glimpse of the future. Through the eyes of Isaiah, we see Israel in the millennial kingdom on the earth. Chapter 9, verse 1. Nevertheless, the gloom will not be upon her who is distressed, as when at first he lightly esteemed the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, and afterward more heavily oppressed her by the way of the sea beyond the Jordan in Galilee of the Gentiles. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. 
Those who dwelt in the land of the shadow of death, upon them a light has shined. The first chapter of John's gospel describes Jesus as coming to earth as that light shining in the darkness. The light of the world, he means to transfer sinners from the kingdom of darkness into his kingdom of light. It's great that we have the New Testament to comment on the old. Matthew chapter 4, verses 15 and 16 quotes these verses, applying it to Jesus. Matthew says, he departed to Galilee and leaving Nazareth, he came and dwelt in Capernaum, which is by the sea in the regions of Zebulun and Naphtali. So 700 years before Jesus came, Isaiah mapped out his early ministry movements. It wasn't in Jerusalem he made his headquarters. It was in an obscure region. Many Gentiles were settled there. It's not the place you would expect the Messiah to come and set up as a base of operations. Uh, you know, today if somebody came, some great leader came, you'd think, well, they'll go to Washington, D.C., where uh, our leadership is, and then they end up in Hanford. you think, whoa, that, what happened? What are you guys doing out here in this obscure, weird place that's really close to Riverdale? Uh, <laughs> but uh, anyway, you know, so that's the, it, this is odd that Jesus, the Son of God, the Messiah of Israel, would not go directly to Jerusalem. His geography tells us a lot about how Jesus would conduct his entire mission on earth. He would constantly and consistently humble himself, making himself, and I quote, of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men, being found in appearance as a man, he would humble himself and become obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Humility marked our Lord from start to finish. It should mark our serving God. God accomplishes his purposes by unusual methods, usually through unusual people, to assure that he gets the glory. Uh, and so we, um, you know, we have a tendency to think it's because of our intellect or some talent we have or some skill we've achieved or whatever that God is able to more use us. Uh, but we just need to be careful and humble. Uh, if we happen to be educated, if we happen to be you know, in the upper crust, uh, we need to realize God even saves people like that and, and have that humility uh, to represent Christ. The recent film, The Jesus Revolution, depicts the role of a young man, uh, that a young man played in igniting the revival that began in Southern California in the late 1960s. Most of you have seen it. It's a, it's a good film. The popular actor who portrays Lonnie Frisbee happens to be 48 years old. How could you pass up on having Jesus in your movie, right? He's the, same, yeah, he's the same guy that plays Jesus in The Chosen, right? So, so he's in the movie. He's 38 years old, or 48 years old. Lonnie Frisbee, who he portrays, was 18 years old when this happened in Southern California. He's 18, 19, 20 years old. Uh, the most unlikely person maybe in the world that you would have thought God would use. The more you learn about Lonnie Frisbee, the, the more you see the glory of God how he did what he did through uh, that person. And, and so that's the idea, is that we, we want to stay humble. God didn't do a great thing in, the, in that revival because a great man was involved, or a man of intellect, or things like that. Uh, God did it through an ordinary individual who was struggling, uh, but came to know Christ. And so verse 3, you have multiplied the nation and increased its joy. They rejoice before you according to the joy of harvest as men rejoice when they divide the spoil. 
Isaiah is seeing a regathered and restored Judah and uh, Israel, a united nation. He describes them as multiplied, meaning growing and expanding in all good things. And he uh, talks about their abundance as if it's a harvest or the spoil of war. And so this, again, abundance and extra and overage. And this would be so different than what they'd been experiencing in this uh, time of political upset uh, and all these various enemies. Imagine being a believer in the time of Isaiah. Hope was lost for the northern kingdom of Israel. Things were bleak at best in the south. Nevertheless, a regathered and restored Israel would one day rejoice in the promised future kingdom of the Messiah. We should note in passing that Isaiah's verbs are in the past tense. He writes as if this has already happened. Of course, it hasn't even happened still. We're looking forward to it. And so we call this, for lack of a better word, prophetic language. As far as he was concerned, if he had been shown this by God, then it was as good as done. Isaiah may have anticipated the regathering and restoration in his own lifetime. We can't say either way. We do notice that Jesus' disciples kept asking him, bugging him about establishing the kingdom. Even when he directly told them he was not going to do it, they kept after him, right up until his ascension into heaven. The Bible encourages us to anticipate the kingdom. Thy kingdom come is a model for prayer, and therefore it ought to permeate our praying. Not that we say it all the time, but that as we're praying, we're thinking, how are we going to pray that is in sync with the kingdom coming and, and with what our mission is and our method should be? And then the last words in red in the Bible are, surely I am coming quickly. And so Christians in the church age are to have an urgency about them, an expectation that the Lord could come at any moment. Verse 4, for you have broken the yoke of his burden and the staff of his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor as in the days of Midian. Yoke, staff, rod, these all illustrate the nation being oppressed by a succession of Gentile nations. Midian were people who oppressed the Jews in the time of the judges. God raised up Gideon to defeat them by putting a Bible in every hotel room. Seriously, uh, Gideon, again, another story, Gideon was a goof. I mean, again, if, if everybody had lined up in front of you that was a possible candidate as a judge, Gideon would have been the last kid that you chose. Nevertheless, God used him uh, in mighty ways, uh, and he literally uh, brought light uh, by having uh, the weird way they won the battle against the Midianites is they had, you remember, little uh, you know, pots with light in them, and at a certain time they broke the pot and the light shined forth, and so the Midianites thought they were being overwhelmed, and they started killing each other. And, and so God has these weird methods for dealing with things using unusually unprepared people. Uh, you know, that, that don't want to even do what he's asking them to do. Isaiah passes over centuries between the first and second comings of Jesus. He sees all burdens of oppression fully and finally lifted off of God's people. Verse 5, for every warrior's sandal from the noisy battle and garments rolled in blood will be used for burning and fuel of fire. Cortez was a very, very, very bad man. When he landed in the New World and what is now Mexico, his soldiers were not happy about being there. Uh, and as they, you know, descent grew, Cortez burned their boats so that they couldn't leave. 
Uh, and so um, not a guy that you want to have dinner with too often, really. For every warrior sandal in the battle, they were going to burn voluntarily. That means that they were done with war. I mean, you don't burn your weapons unless you're done with war, in a sense, forever. And that's mind-boggling to us because mankind is always at war. We're all pretty familiar with the war in Ukraine. There are actually more than 20 active conflicts in the world today, some more severe than others. Nevertheless, uh, you know, all of them very uh, uh, sincere in terms of there being wars. And so that, that's just you know, the way we roll as a human beings, right? There's war all the time. And so when Isaiah says, yeah, that's done, that's gone, no more implements of war, it's amazing. How will Israel, of all nations the most despised, finally enjoy peace? A child was born to her. Uh, verse 6, unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulder, and his name will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. A child is born who was first a son who could be given. The son existed before he was miraculously given to be conceived in a woman's womb and born. This can only uniquely, marvelously describe Jesus. He is the only one uh, that was in eternity past and then became the God-man in time in order to save us. He will bear the weight of human government. We agree with the exclamation of the seventh trumpet angel in the book of the Revelation who says, the kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our Christ and of his Lord, and he will reign forever and ever. Hallelujah, hallelujah. Right, hallelujah, of course. Five names are given to him. How difficult must it have been to choose five names? Scholars say there are more than 200 names for Jesus in the Bible, and I think there's a lot more than that. Uh, and, and so five names. The list starts with wonderful. That is not a description of the type of counselor Jesus is. A lot of people say, well, he's a wonderful counselor. Well, he is, but wonderful does not modify counselor. It's a standalone name. So look real quick beyond wonderful and counselor to the other names. Mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace. Jesus is uniquely those three, right? There's no other mighty God. There's no other Prince of Peace. There's no other Father of Eternities is literally what it says, as we'll get to that. And in that same way, Wonderful and Counselor are uniquely Jesus as well. It sounds awkward to say Jesus is wonderful. It sounds like we're describing his character when really... That's what he is. That's who he is. He is altogether wonderful. No one else is wonderful. No one else is wonderful. We can use the word, sure. I remember years ago, I was listening to the radio. Charles Swindoll, you guys remember Charles Swindoll? Good guy. And uh, he was in a section of scripture that talked about God being awesome. And he, he got off on a tangent. He says, you know, we use this word all the time, awesome. This is awesome. That's awesome. And finally, he got really into it. And he says, you know, God alone is awesome. There is nothing awesome but God. And I, that's the sense here. There's really nothing wonderful except Jesus. I, it almost breaks my mind in a good way to think about this. The, the road I traveled on this, I got to thinking about how I can honestly say in my spirit, Lord, you are wonderful no matter what is going on in my life. I can say that because I know he is working all things together for the good and that 
what is happening to me, though it may be terrible, he is sovereign and in charge, and he loves me with an everlasting love, uh, and he is wonderful in my abounding or in my being abased, in my blessings or in my buffetings. And so no matter what's happening, uh, you know, on that scale, I can say, Lord, you are wonderful. You can do anything that you want, and this is what you've chosen to do, and this is wonderful. Job understood this a little bit way back in what may be the first book ever written in the, new, in the Bible. He says, the Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. We would insert in there, wonderful. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away, wonderful. Because he'll do whatever he wants, whenever he wants to show and share his love with us. And so Jesus is wonderful. Uh, one of the modern versions translates counselor, advisor. No, no, no. Wrong connotation, right? What do you think of when you think of an advisor? Some of you think of your financial advisor and the advice that he gives, which cost you most of your money a few years ago, right? Maybe you would have done better, maybe worse, who knows? But anyway, Jesus doesn't give advice. He's not like Lucy in her little psychiatric booth waiting for Charlie Brown to come and ask a question. Jesus gives counselor, uh, gives counseling rather, because he is the counselor, and he constantly, directly counsels Christians by the indwelling Holy Spirit. And so he is counselor, you have the Holy Spirit, no one else can do what Jesus can do in that dimension of our living, right? No other counselor, no other doctor, no other pastor, no other anybody can speak to you in the place that the Holy Spirit can uh, using Jesus' word, using the word of God. Uh, and that's a remarkable thing. And that's why counseling ought to be discipleship, where you identify the word of God that can really minister to your situation. What does God say about this situation? I mean, who knows? let's say here's an easy one. A uh, young Christian girl comes in and says, hey, I'm in love with this boy, and I want to marry him. I don't know if I should. Is he a Christian? No, you shouldn't. You can't. Don't. Run away. Invite him to church. If he doesn't get saved all at once, then get rid of him because you're headed for trouble. Uh, so, so really, that's, you know, that's the idea. Uh, there's no reason to spend more than 10 minutes on that. Not that we're not compassionate, but that's the answer, right? It's not, and you know what? That's not advice. That's the counselor talking, saying, hey, you belong to me. I have what's best in mind for you. I'm wonderful. Go my way and see how things are going to work out. He is the mighty God. Strong's Concordance says that the word for God is a word that can be used of any deity, even an idol. There are a lot of supernatural persons mentioned in the Bible, probably some that aren't. Some of them are even called gods with a lowercase g. None of them is mighty God. Only the Godhead, the Father, Son, and Spirit are mighty God. The outcome of human history and the outcome of our lives individually is never in doubt or danger. Never in doubt or danger. Uh, in our prophecy update, we talked about how weird the world is right now. People are scared. I mean, they're very, very afraid. Maybe some of us get afraid from time to time, but you know what? We don't need to be afraid because we stand on a firm foundation. We know what history is headed towards. I may not know my immediate history or what's going to happen in the next five years in my life or yours, but I know that if I die, I'm going to be raised from the dead. And if I live, I'm going to be raptured. And, I, I, you know, we've read the end, right? You read the end of the book. And so stand on that. 
He is the mighty God. He's everlasting Father. Now, I thought the Father was the Father. Uh, the Trinity is confusing enough. Well, he is, and we must not confuse the persons of the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. A better translation of this, uh, these words would be the Father of eternity. The Father of eternity. Let me ask you a question. Who is the Father of the United States? George Washington, right? Maybe I should ask that again. No, I'm just... Maybe we should take the Pledge of Allegiance. No, but uh, no. George Washington, right? Father of the United States in a, in a very different way than we use the name Father. Jesus Christ, Father of eternity, in the sense that from eternity past to eternity forward, he is the, you might say, although the Godhead is all involved, Father, Son, and Spirit, Jesus is the focus coming as the man, as the God-man, dying for the sins of the world, rising from the dead, ascending into heaven, not greater than God, equal with God, but forever the God-man, the Father of eternity, uh, you know, in the sense of he's responsible, he got us past sin because of what he did on the cross. So that's the, the sense here. And again, no one else is the Father of eternity besides Jesus. Of the increase of his government, uh, there will, uh, first of all, did I say Prince of Peace yet? No, thank you for telling me. It never gets old to say there can be no prince without the Prince of Peace. On the cross, by his substitutionary sacrifice, Jesus made peace with sinful humanity. Believers will enjoy that peace forever. Then in verse 7, of the increase of his government and the peace, there will be no end. Upon the throne of David and over his kingdom, to order it and establish it with judgment and justice, from that time forward, even forever, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. We talk about political parties having a platform that they stand on, and there are planks that constitute that platform. Jesus doesn't run for office. He's not going to need re-election. But we can see a sort of platform in verse 7. With apologies to Ronald Reagan, Jesus' government will be big government. He'll be over all the nations of the earth. There will be no so-called separation between the spiritual and the state. There will be no competing religions or philosophies or psychologies or political parties competing for mankind's devotion. It'll be Jesus. Remember the huge move it was to relocate the American embassy in Israel from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem and how, for how many years presidents were afraid to do it? It took place, not coincidentally, uh, May 14, 2018, which was the 70th anniversary of the creation of the modern state of Israel. So there's a lot of symbolism there. Jesus will move the government of earth to Jerusalem, to King David's throne. It will fulfill the Davidic covenant, which unconditionally promised Israel that a descendant of David's would rule from that throne forever. A plank, and maybe the only plank that the platform needs, will be righteousness. Isaiah doesn't use that word, but we get it because he uses the word just, uh, judgment and justice. If you have just judgments, that's another way of saying you have righteousness. It's the right thing. Uh, it's what God wants. Read my lips, George H.W. Bush famously invited us, and then he said what? No new taxes. Dana Carvey came along and said, not going to happen. Uh, and a lot of new taxes since then. Jesus' forever kingdom will not need taxation. His own zeal with, uh, will power and prosper his rule. Later in Isaiah, we're going to read, For I, the Lord your God, will hold your right hand 
saying to you, fear not, I will help you. God grips you, Christian, like a parent holding the hand of a toddler crossing a busy street. Those are special times, aren't they? You have a little toddler that you have to hold their hand. Why are the hands always so greasy, slimy, and dirty? Have you ever noticed that? You don't know if it's boogers or, you know. I mean, hold my hand, honey. Uh, you know, and stuff there. Whatever. But you, and, and you know what? If you, you know, you're crossing the street. If you don't hold that hand, I mean, they'll wiggle out of there in a minute. It's like they have Vaseline or something, you know, and they're gone. And, and the next thing you know, when you're in a serious situation. So God is portraying, hey, this is my discipline. I, I, I'll use my hand to discipline you. Uh, and, you know, if, if not, uh, if, you don't if you do receive that, I can take you back and we can hold hands again kind of a thing. So that's what's going on. Uh, and so what, what do we want to do? We want to put our hands in the hand of the man from Galilee. That'll, have, that'll be with you all day now. As we go on here, uh, are you releasing your grip in God's outstretched hand? Clint Barton thought he had a firm grip on Natasha Romanoff, but she let go, falling to heroic death. Nothing heroic about 7th century Judah. They were way beyond just letting go. Their hands were kept busy with immorality and idolatry. Isaiah talks about four cycles of discipline marked by the repetition of the phrase, for all this his anger is not turned away, but his hand is stretched out still. His anger would not be turned away because they wouldn't repent, but his hand remains stretched out for further discipline or for forgiveness. And so verse 8, the Lord sent a word against Jacob, and it has fallen on Israel. The people will know, Ephraim and the inhabitants of Samaria, who say in pride and arrogance of heart, the bricks have fallen down, but we will rebuild with hewn stones. The sycamores are cut down, but we will replace them with cedars. Therefore, the Lord shall set up the adversaries of reason against him and spur his enemies on. The Syrians before and the Philistines behind, they shall devour Israel with an open mouth. For all this, his anger is not turned away, but his hand is stretched out still. Jacob, Israel, Ephraim, those are all names for the 10 tribes in the north. They had ignored God's warnings that he would use surrounding nations to humble them. In pride and arrogance of heart, they wanted no help from the Lord. They talk about the bricks falling down, but they'll use stones, and the sycamores cut down, but they'll use cedars. The idea was that the enemy had already come and created a lot of destruction and a lot of ruin. But instead of reaching out to God for help, they said, no, we will build back better. Are you familiar with that phrase? Actually, it started in the United Nations some years ago. It was uh, coined by uh, President Bill Clinton building back better. Then, of course, the Biden campaign used it uh, you know, for, in his presidential campaign. Other uh, groups use it, like the World Economic Forum and the World Bank. And so the idea is that they're going to build back the world better than it ever was. Uh, their adherents have as their modest goal to be planet Earth's saviors. Uh, they're going to save the planet from climate change and from economic failure and from hunger. Uh, by building back better without God. I'd say that qualifies as pride and arrogance of heart, wouldn't you? Hi, I'm John Kerry. I'm your energy czar. We're going to build this world back like you've never seen before. Yeah, my Bible says it's a world that you've never seen before, but it's going to be a terrible time of trouble. Uh, and so uh, that's what's going on. And so, you know, not to, we have to careful, be careful not to insert ourselves into the scripture where we don't belong, 
but this is an interesting one. Um, it's a human attitude. It isn't just Judah who said this. People say this all the time. We're going to build back better. It's like a Tower of Babel situation, too. It's like, hey, we don't, we're, we're going to all get together and make this a great world. God told us not to do this, but we're going to do it anyway because we don't need him. <laughs> Commentators, uh, this phrase, uh, for all his anger is not turned away, but his hand is outstretched still. Commentators tend to explain the outstretched hand as the promise of further discipline, but we're using it in both senses. You know, sometimes you don't have to make a decision. People say, well, which is it? Is he disciplining them or is he reaching out to save them? It's both, right? Because that's what you do with your kids. You don't just say, well, I'm going to discipline you and then you're gone. That's it. Go door to door and see if anybody needs a kid because we're done here. The idea is to bring them back in, right, to have fellowship with them. And so it's both. And God is saying, I, this is how I deal with nations. If you do these things, like try to build back better without me, and a couple of other things we'll see, I'm going to discipline you. And if you don't respond, I'm going to take your place away and give you what you desire. But if you do, then let's put your hand in the hand of the man from Galilee and, and walk with me. Verse 13, for the people do not turn to him who strikes them, nor do they seek the Lord of hosts. Therefore, the Lord will cut off head and tail from Israel, palm branch and bulrush in one day. The elder and honorable, he is the head. The prophet who teaches lies, he is the tail. For the leaders of this people cause them to err, and those who are led by them are destroyed. Therefore, the Lord will have no joy in their young men, nor have mercy on their fatherless and widows. For everyone is a hypocrite and an evildoer, and every mouth speaks folly. For all this, his anger is not turned away, but his hand is stretched out still. J. Alec Motyer says of this passage, Rejection of the Lord led to reliance on human wisdom for national guidance, but their leaders were misleaders, and moral decay spread throughout society. We often define biblical sexual morality here, just so we're clear. It is, uh, at its foundation, sex between one biological male and one biological female in a monogamous heterosexual uh, union, having made a covenant of companionship to remain faithful to God and to each other for as long as they both shall live. How are we doing? Not good. We're being inundated with a cesspool overflow of sexual immorality. And it is a key thing that God disciplines nations for. Uh, it's gross. This week, I, I don't know, a couple times, you know, I was uh, clicking through the channels and I came to scenes where uh, there's one in Schindler's List, and I forget the other movie, but the people are in sewage. Uh, they had to walk through the sewage to get to where they were going or hide in the sewage, and I don't need to tell you, it's gross. Uh, if you want to kind of experience that a little bit, go out to the latrines that we have out there while we're remodeling the girls' beds. So, field trip, honey. Kids are going on a field trip to the potties. Anyway, uh, so it's gross. The immorality is, is like that. That's how God sees it. It's filth. And so we know what biblical morality is, and therefore we know what immorality is. And immorality is something God definitely will judge nations for. For wickedness burns as the fire, verse 18, uh, and kindle in the thick of the forest. They shall mount up like rising smoke. Through the wrath of the Lord of hosts, the land is burned up, and the people shall be as fuel for the fire. No man shall spare his brother, and he shall snatch on the right hand and be hungry. He shall devour on the left hand and not be satisfied. Every man shall eat the flesh of his own arm. Manasseh shall devour Ephraim and Ephraim Manasseh. Together they shall be against Judah. For all this his anger is not turned away, but his hand is stretched out still. Their wickedness is likened to a raging forest fire. Remember, only you can prevent forest fires. 
Uh, but the idea is here, the, the, you know, it might, whatever goings on in their heart and life, the sin, it might start off small, but it doesn't take long for a fire to get out of control, right? Some of you have experienced this, who don't take into account displacement when you put your turkey in a frying pan on, or a frying thing on. I, I love those videos as long as people don't get burned to death. But, you know, you, know, you say, oh, I'm, I'm gonna, let, let me fill this, pan, this uh, pot and then put a 13-pound turkey in it and not think that the oil is going to overflow. Hey, around Thanksgiving, they have some heinous fires on Instagram that you can watch you know, and stuff. So uh, your sin, whatever sin we're involved in, you and I, because the Bible says we still sin, it may seem small, but it doesn't take much for it to become a full-blown inferno in our lives. Uh, and so be careful. Their lustful cravings are compared to a hunger for meat that is so overpowering that they would consume their own flesh to satisfy it. You don't need to be a cannibal to consume your own flesh. People do it all the time. Drug overdose deaths have reached a historic high in America, devastating families and communities. 104,000 Americans died due to drug overdose in the 12-month period ending in September of 2021. And uh, it, it's, you know, it's the flesh taking over, you becoming addicted, and keep feeding that desire until you're dead. Collectively, smoking alcohol and illicit drug use, not smoking alcohol, but smoking. <laughs> Trying to get you out of here on time. Kills 11.8 million people each year, more than the number of all cancers combined. And so we do a pretty good job of destroying ourselves. Uh, the opening verses of verse 10 would fall under social justice. Talks about orphans, widows, the fatherless, those kinds of things. Um, you hear that term a lot today. It's a hot topic. Uh, the issues being discussed today are different from those in the seventh century. But God is interested in biblical social justice. Uh, and he, you know, in a nutshell, or I mean, one way to get started with it is to say, yeah, he cares for orphans, widows, uh, and the poor. And if your nation, my nation, any nation, doesn't care for those people, and I'm not defining what that is. I don't have a position. I'm, I'm ignorant of all that. I just, you know, I just keep telling you I don't want to know about that. But anyway, you get the position. I tell me what it is. But uh, you know, if God is interested in that, and if a nation oppresses the poor and the widow and and you know that um, or the unborn child, for example, God says I, I have to judge you. I'll reach out to discipline you, and if you don't receive my discipline, I will. Remove my hand of blessing from your life. It's pretty hard, really, to lift someone onto a ledge with one hand grasping theirs. I tried to get some statistics on it, but it kept taking me to pages where people were trying to do one-arm pull-ups, which are pretty hard, right? And I don't know if any of you can do a one-arm pull-up. I, I, I can't do a pull-up, let alone a one-arm pull-up, but uh, unless I have a motorized bar. So, but anyway... Uh, it's hard. It's, it's almost impossible. But in the spiritual realm of salvation or damnation, Jesus is the only person who can pull you up from the depths of sin into heaven for eternity. What a beautiful picture. How can he do that? He was the God-man who was lifted up on the cross. He raised from the dead to exchange his righteousness for your sin. What must you do to be saved? Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. 